We are in a series on the book of Colossians, and uh, some of you who have been journeying with us through this book for the last um, five weeks, and you know, I, I, I said this earlier, but I had, I had great uh, hopes when we began this, and the hope was that we'd, we would somehow make our way through the book of Colossians in six weeks, and I realized after the first message that it was going to take much longer than that, and that's a good thing, right? But I also noticed that on my notes it says this is part six of nine, and I'm thinking, well, how is there only three parts left when there's like five or six more weeks? Um, so we will continue in Colossians, and I hope that as we, um, we talk about this uh, incredible book, this letter of Paul's, that it causes um, conversation among you and uh, with one another to talk about some of these incredible truths that are in here. That's my prayer. And as I said last week, that we would be changed by what we hear and what we experience of Christ as we encounter him in this word. What would it look like for each of us to truly have a heart for ministry, a focus on others rather than a preoccupation with ourselves, an overriding concern for meeting the needs of others instead of always looking for ways to have our own needs met. What would that look like? Does that sound too critical? Um, I'm speaking to myself this morning as well. What would it look like to have a heart for ministry? What would it take for us to really, sincerely, truly impact people to affect others, to minister to them in a significant way, in the way that the Apostle Paul did, passionately, transparently, faithfully, powerfully. What would that look like for you this morning as you listen? The section of Colossians, these five or six verses, give us a clear view into Paul's heart for ministry. His was a big heart. It was a compassionate heart. It was a heart, as F.F. Bruce once wrote, that was set free by the love of Christ. It was a heart that was overflowing with love for God and for other people. It was a heart that made a huge difference in the world in which we live. And by looking closely at Paul's life, not just at what he did, but more importantly at who he was in Christ we can better understand who we are in Christ. Or should I say, we can begin to understand who we can become in Christ, who God has called us to be. We can use Paul's life, his heart for ministry, as a baseline to check our own hearts and our own attitudes. This morning's message is essentially a heart check. (laughs) I want to ask you some questions this morning. I want to ask you three questions. I asked the Sunday school teachers these questions this morning, and one of them said, these are the questions that keep me awake at night. So my hope is that they will keep you awake for the next 20 minutes as I ask these questions. They're difficult questions. They're personal questions. They're theological questions. But if we take them seriously and we answer them honestly, we will leave here with an accurate picture of the condition of our own ministry hearts and an idea of what we need to do. This is my rehab plan for all of us this morning. Listen carefully to chapter 1, verses 24 through 29. And, I, and if, you're, if you're reading, that's fine, but I want you to listen to these words. Paul says, Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I will fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in all of its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed in the Lord's people. 
To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim Him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all of the energy that Christ has so powerfully given and works within me. So here's the first question. What is your attitude toward suffering? What is your attitude toward suffering? I told you these questions were going to be difficult. Some of you might not like coming to a church and having the pastor ask you a question like that. But I'm asking it anyway. What is your attitude toward suffering? What do you think about? I suspect that most of us view suffering as a curse, right? As something to be avoided at all costs. But here and elsewhere in his writings, Paul implies that suffering is a natural part of life. A natural part of life and ministry. It's part of our experience here on this earth. It's something that we should count on. In fact, it's something that's inevitable if we choose to follow Christ. We will suffer. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright expands on this idea, and I really like what he says. Listen carefully to this. We would be wrong to think that suffering Think of suffering only in terms of the direct outward persecution that professing Christians sometimes undergo because of their faith. The church must, it is true, always be ready for such persecution, but all Christians will suffer for their faith in one way or another. If not outwardly, then inwardly. Through the long, slow battle with temptation or sickness the agonizing anxieties of Christian responsibility for family or for church, or because of the constant doubts and uncertainties that inevitably accompany faith. Another writer takes this notion a bit further, and he says, Christians are to be recognized for the suffering that they endure. To be chosen by God is not to be protected from pain, difficulty, and suffering. On the contrary, the call to follow Christ is, to a large degree, the call to suffer for Him. The Apostle Paul, from the day that he became a follower of Christ, was destined to suffer for Christ's sake. This is what the Lord said about Paul in Acts 9. He said, Paul is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. In this life, you and I will experience difficulty. We will experience pain and suffering. We will not escape it, especially, listen to this, especially those of us who follow Christ. So how will we respond? What will our attitude be? That is the question. Somewhere along the line in my life, early on, I picked up this notion that to be a follower of Christ meant that I was protected from all the bad stuff that could possibly happen in life. It would never have occurred to me that as a follower of Christ that I would suffer and struggle just like everybody else. In fact, even maybe to a, to a, to a larger degree, it almost derailed my faith, honestly. And even as I preached this sermon this morning... I don't want to suffer. And I'm going to talk more about this. I don't know about you, but it's not something that I pray for every day. More on that in a minute. Verse 24. 
provide some insight into Paul's attitude. Hang on to your seats. We would do well to imitate his attitude if we're going to develop this heart for ministry. Verse 24. Now, Paul says, I rejoice in what I'm suffering. I rejoice in what I am suffering. That's what it says. The first thing we discover is that he rejoiced in his suffering. He, according to the New Living Translation, was glad to suffer. Most of us find it easy to rejoice in our accomplishments and our good health and our material possessions and so on. And although we wouldn't admit it, we may even rejoice on some level in other people's sufferings. How do we do that? I'm sure glad that's him or her and not me that's going through it. And so in that sense, we, we give thanks to God that we're not the poor saps that have to go through what that person goes through. We don't admit that very often. But do any of us truly, truly rejoice, give thanks to God in our own difficulties? Did you wake up this morning and rejoice because of some difficulty that you're experiencing? I doubt it. I didn't. But I will now. I'll try. So assuming that we should rejoice in suffering, assuming that, that there's something helpful, that there's something redemptive about suffering, how do we do it? How do we begin to develop a Paul-like attitude towards suffering? Should we? Maybe it's crazy, but it begins here, I believe. Listen carefully to this. We recognize that our rejoicing takes place not in the act of suffering. Suffering itself is never an occasion for rejoicing. But in the outcome, we rejoice in the outcome, in the result of suffering, even if we don't yet know precisely what that outcome is going to be. That's called faith. We don't rejoice in the act of suffering. We rejoice in what we know, what we believe to be the outcome of what it produces in us. Why? Because suffering and hardship always produce perseverance. The ability to press on, to stay at it, to get up and try again. Some of you have been knocked flat in the past year or two. And you're here this morning. You're here. You've gotten up. You're persevering. You're pressing on. And this perseverance always leads to maturity. Christ-like character. Which, by the way, is the goal of our faith. And as we'll see later in the section, is the most important thing in life. Suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces Christ's character in us. So when someone's suffering, do you go to them and say, God works all things for good? I don't think so. But I think what we can say is that I don't understand what you're struggling with. I don't understand your pain. But I do know this, that somehow God redeems everything, the worst things, and He changes us, and He makes us more like His Son. And if that's worth anything to you, that's what God's doing. This, I believe, is what Paul had in mind when he talked about rejoicing in his suffering. And it's why he could say, I'm glad, I welcome it, I rejoice in it. He also viewed his suffering as beneficial for other people. He suffered for others. He said, I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. How many of us when we suffer can see this far beyond our nose? Seriously. Paul says, I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, Colossians. For you, men and women. 
whom I will never, ever meet? He didn't. Paul never met these people. And by the way, he was in chains in a Roman prison when he wrote this. And he says, I suffer for you. If I'm going to suffer, I want to suffer for myself. I don't want to suffer for you. I don't want to suffer for people I've never met. I want to suffer for me. And although that may reflect my attitude and your attitude, it doesn't reflect Paul's attitude. He saw suffering as a benefit to other people. Why? Because it brought the gospel to them. Whatever it took for them to hear the good news about Christ, he was willing to do. Further, he saw his suffering not only beneficial to a few people, but he expands it. He saw it as beneficial to the entire church, to the body of Christ. And this is what he's getting at when he makes this weird, kind of confusing statement, and I will fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, the church. The New Living Translation renders this verse like this. I am completing what remains of Christ's sufferings for his body, the church. Paul is connecting his pain, his suffering, his affliction with Christ's, but not Christ's suffering on the cross. That which needs to be filled, that which is still lacking, is not some further work of reconciliation that needs to be done as though Christ's death was incomplete. By His death on the cross, as we talked about last week, Jesus accomplished everything that was necessary for the whole world's salvation and for our salvation. Nothing more needs to be done. It is finished. What Paul is saying here, and it's a really astonishing claim, is that he is suffering for the Colossians and indeed for the entire church in the same way that Jesus would suffer for them if he were there. In other words, Paul joyfully welcomes the opportunity to share in something of Christ's sufferings for the church. Now, think about that for a minute. Think about praying to enter in on some level to Christ's sufferings for other people. How Jesus must weep for that person. How Jesus must, how his heart must break. And then to pray, God, give me some sense of that in my own life. Break my heart. And by the way, that's called compassion. No healthy, functional person chooses to suffer. But every mature believer knows the two things that Paul knew. Choosing to follow Christ means that we will suffer. And that our suffering will produce deeper, richer, more mature faith. Christ-like character. That's the truth. You ready for the second question or want me to stop? What is your reason for serving? What's your attitude towards suffering? Now, what I want to ask you, first of all, if you serve, which is a whole other issue, why? Why do you serve God? Why do you do young life? Why do you serve the children's ministry? Why do you serve hospitality? Why do you clean up this place? Why do you do all the things you do? Why am I a pastor? Why does Andy play the guitar and lead us in worship? Why do we do what we do? Why do we serve? Do we serve in order to gain God's favor? I think we all do on some level. Do we serve to be noticed by other people? Maybe. Do we serve out of a sense of duty to the church? We should. No, I'm kidding. Do we? Some of us do. Perhaps we serve because it makes us feel better or it eases some guilt that we have packed around for a while. You know, I made a kind of offhanded crack a few weeks ago about doing yard work here, um, and I got scolded for saying this, but that somehow how we earn credit with God. And I think, you know, there's always some truth in wisecracks, right? 
And uh, I think that even that, honestly, some of us may serve and do things because we think that somehow God is really pleased. And I think God can be pleased with those things, but it's more of a byproduct than it is the very reason. So what is our reason for serving? Verses 25 through 27, Paul says this, I have become its servant, the church's servant, by the commission that God gave me. I become a servant of the church because of the commission that God gave me. There's only one good reason to serve. And if people come to you in this church and ask you to be on their ministry team, and they say something like, we're looking for a pulse and a warm body, you say, I don't want any part of it. The only reason that we should serve is because God has chosen us, He's called us, and He's gifted us to serve. You see, it's not about us. It's about God. There are far too many organizations and churches that simply grab the next available person and plop them onto a board or a ministry team and say, serve, we need you. And many of us are just too willing to say, okay, I don't have anything else to do five nights a week, so I'll serve. Are you called? Are you gifted? Are you chosen by God? That's the reason you serve. Paul was a servant by the commission of God, by the call of God. I have become the church's servant by the commission that God gave me, he said. It was God's call. Paul was God's choice. God gave him his commission. He was simply carrying out an assignment that was given to him by his master, an assignment that he viewed as a privilege and a divine call. Those of you who serve, do you see your service as a privilege, as a divine call, as a divine gift from God? If you don't, you won't make it. You won't continue to serve. The only thing that keeps me in the ministry, honestly, at times, is God's call. I'm reminded that He is the one who called me. It was His idea. And that doesn't mean I begrudgingly do it. It means I count it a privilege and a high responsibility and a joy to serve. And in that, in the midst of that, there is joy. It's amazing. Paul was doing that. And my question, secondary question, is how do you view the assignment that God has given you? Or perhaps I should ask this question. Do you even know what assignment God has given you? Are you interested in finding out? I believe that you're all gifted, that you're all called, that we're all chosen by God. And the purpose of this commission was to reveal a mystery. We love the word mystery. But it's not a puzzle. It's not something unintelligible. That's how we think of mystery. This mystery that Paul talks about is a truth that in Christ, through His death on the cross, God reconciled all things in heaven and on earth to Himself. He brought them back. He made peace with them. Even you and me. That's the mystery. It's not so much of a mystery anymore. And the glorious result of this mystery, the richness of this mystery, is this. Christ in you, Paul says, the hope of glory. What's the result of all that Christ has done? By His Spirit, He lives in us, in me, in you. His Spirit is alive. His Spirit speaks to us and leads us and changes us. And because He dwells in our hearts by faith, we can look forward to sharing God's glory, not only in heaven someday, but right here on earth. You see, this faith that we talk about has got to be real here. And if it's not, I don't want any part of it. It's not some pie-in-the-sky thing. It's real. And somehow God chooses you and me, of all people, 
to reveal His glory in this world that we live. This mystery, which was once hidden, Paul says, has now been brought out in the open, revealed in Christ for everyone to see, no matter who they are. And as His followers, it's our privilege, it's our responsibility, it's our calling, it's our commission to tell the story, to proclaim it, and perhaps even to suffer on account of it. And this leads me to the final question. I don't think it's any easier of a question. How big is your vision for people? When you look at people, whether they're your children, your spouses, your friends, your family members, people in this church, what do you see? What do you see? When it comes to people, are you an optimist or are you a pessimist? Do you see people as deserving of our suspicion? Do you see the worst in them or do you see people as God sees them? Are you a realist? Sometimes our reality shrinks our vision for other people. We don't very often see people the way God does. Here's how Paul describes his vision for others. Verse 28, we proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature. Everyone fully mature in Christ. Literally, everyone perfect. All they were created to be. All that you were created to be. Actively fulfilling God's purpose for your life. Fully mature in Christ. Perfect. Not perfection as we think of it, but doing what God created you to do. In that process. That is perfection. And that's Paul's vision for everyone. And how does he purpose to do it? To fulfill the vision? By proclaiming Christ. That's the first way. We openly proclaim the truth about Christ, about who He is and about what He's done for us. We make it clear. We're open. We're honest. We're real. And we proclaim the truth with integrity. And we always make Christ the subject of our proclamation. It's not about us. I was such a bad person. Now I'm such an awesome person. You've heard testimonies like that, right? Did all these awful things and now I do all these great things. No. I was a scoundrel. And God loved me. And God redeemed me. And because of Him, I can stand here this morning and be real. That's the truth. Because of Him. Not because of me. We proclaim Christ by admonishing, by warning people, by instructing them, by correcting them, by pointing out things in their lives that we don't agree with. How hard is that? We remind them of who God is and what He desires from them. And we do it gently and lovingly, with compassion and with sensitivity, earning the right to be heard and to listen to by people that trust us and know us. That's how we do it. We don't slam them across the head with our big Bibles. We invest time and we love people and then we earn the right to speak truth into their life. And finally, by teaching with all wisdom, we demonstrate clearly and simply what the good news is. It's simple. It's not simplistic. And we demonstrate how it connects with life. What good would it do to stand up here and talk about all this stuff if we didn't somehow connect it? And we do all of this so other people may come to know who Christ is and step into the journey. This is what it means, and this is how you do it. That's what we say. This is what it means, and this is where we start. How big is your vision for people? Which of these gifts do you possess, and are you using them? Are you proclaiming and admonishing and teaching with all wisdom in a variety of ways? Well, because the church continues to be vulnerable to all kinds of strange beliefs, 
unorthodox beliefs, the task of proclaiming and admonishing and teaching remains urgent. In fact, I would argue that it's probably the most urgent task that we have as a church. It's highest priority. There's a lot of goofy thinking out there and in the church, not this church, in the church. But to do these things, we must possess a heart for ministry. We must be willing to joyfully serve others, to suffer for them, and for the sake of the gospel at times. We must serve others with the clear conviction that we are commissioned by God to do so. And we must develop a vision for others that is as big as Paul's. That we long to see everybody fully mature in Christ. Perfect. All that they were created to be. That's my prayer. Make it your prayer as well.